Amen. Good morning, Mercy family. Good morning. Man, I'm, um, I'm so excited for, uh, for our time of worship this morning. Uh, we got baptism. We're talking about VBS actually being in person. Um, the songs are singing. I just, I'm pumped. I know, parents. Woo, it's in person. Um, hey, and uh, by the way, just uh, let me pastor you real quick. I think Mother's Day is two weekends from now. All right? So plan accordingly. You have been pastored. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. If you got your Bible, Hebrews 12. We're going to finish um, this little three-part trilogy of sermons that I talked about uh, last week in Hebrews 12. And our goal in this whole thing is we are asking God to help us get a bigger view of God. Right, Get a bigger understanding as to who he really is, because when he gets bigger, everything else gets smaller. Right? Everything else in the day-to-day that can consume our hearts and our minds and our attention and create all that fear and anxiety and stress starts to get a little bit smaller, starts to get put in its proper place as our view of God gets bigger. So part one of our sermons as we were walking through Hebrews 12, it started with suffering, where we see God as our loving Father who somehow is refining us through our suffering. And when we see it that way, our suffering gets smaller. It's still suffering. It's still hard. But that bigger God is with us in that suffering. And it's in the assurance of his providence and his presence that we weary travelers find strength to walk forward. That was the first weekend. Then we looked last weekend at this warning, sort of part two of the trilogy was this warning on the things that will keep us from seeing God rightly. Like you can miss God. You can walk through your life and miss him. And many do. We get distracted by things like disunity, bitterness, immorality, and we miss the beauty and glory and majesty of God. And our Old Testament character Esau was the example, right? This, he, he was brought up by our author as an example of, man, how valuable our salvation and our standing with God really is and how insane it is to give that all away for the temporary pleasures of this world, but how we tend to do it. Well, today... Today, we lift our eyes to the gracious promise of heaven. That's where we're going today. And the gracious promise of heaven is meant to inform, to direct, to motivate how we walk through our life. In short, kind of my working theme for today, as we start in verse 18 and go through the end of the chapter, is that your strength for today comes from your vision of forever. All right, your strength for how you get through today, how God delivers you strength, comes from your vision of forever. And we got a tough task in that. Because, y'all, we just don't think a lot about eternity. I mean, we don't. Right? Life has demands, distractions, a lot of times good things. Right? Good things. You know, there's just, there's, I think of things like uh, when we actually do lift our eyes up off the everyday stuff uh, to moments that feel like, man, they're going to have a long-lasting impact. Like you think of marriage. You know, when you get married, you're thinking, man, this is, this is forever. But it's really, no, you don't. You think till death do us part, right? It's still in this life. You think about having a baby and you start to fill out your last will and testament. And that's still kind of focused on the things and how they're going to work in this life, right? We don't actively think about eternity. I know sometimes we say, man, some things feel like they last for an eternity, right? Like this pandemic or Grey's Anatomy. Like it feels like it just can't 
stop. It's never going to end. But even that, even things like that, hopefully will end, right? Now, I think my greatest challenge today is to convince us collectively or to help us take the eyes of our hearts, the scripture's going to call kind of that center of who you are down at the core, take that and lift it off of the daily grind, lift it off even the 20-year plan, and look to the time beyond your last breath here on this earth. And to focus our attention there, I want to invite you to look at what the Christian scriptures have to say about that moment and every moment for all of eternity that follows after that moment. I believe what the Bible has to say about that is a hope-growing, life-purpose-giving, awe-inspiring, and awe-increasing vision that will strengthen you, even revolutionize how you approach everyday life. I think this is what early Christians had an abundance of in their spiritual diet, and I think we're absolutely starved for it. I think our practice of our faith reveals a significant, and I include myself in this, a significant deficiency in how we think about forever. And I don't mean that we, you know, I'm not talking about like a, a fear of death kind of forever. I'm talking about we lack an anticipation of heaven. We lack a longing for it. We lack a security in our soul that comes from our certainty of it. So we're going to work on expanding our vision of heaven today. And then our author in Hebrews is going to attach some pretty practical life application steps kind of things to it. That is going to come. But y'all, the thing I've been praying for that's so difficult uh, for me is, as your pastor here in this, is really the main point of today is just look. Like the main application for our time in God's word is to try and help you to look. Like look at heaven, look at what you have. That's what the author is doing here is a big, big part of it is just look at what God has in store for you. And the response is going to be, if you aren't a follower of Christ, it's going to be to receive all that God has for you in Christ. And if you are a follower of Christ, it's going to be to worship. It's going to be to look and to worship. That's what's coming Man, I just, the more, this is what's so awesome about the, the Bible. The more you dig into it, the more relevant it gets to your life. All right, not less. And so we're going to get into it. I'm going to walk you through it, and we'll talk about where strength for today comes from your vision of forever. So verse 18, Hebrews 12. You guys ready? Yeah. Let's go. Let's go. For you have not come to what could be touched. All right. Stop. And by the way, I'm going to do that a whole lot. We are going to see a whole lot of Bible today. I, we're going to kind of plant in Hebrews 12, uh, but you just need to know, I'm going to be referencing a lot, I think, all the way as far as Genesis 4 and Revelation 22, okay, and then a bunch in between. So a lot of Bible coming at you today, but this is, our, of course, our home base. He says, you not come to what could be touched. What he's saying is you and I, as Christians, are God's people, and he's saying that that means something. It's about God's people. This passage is about God's people arriving to him, back to him. What we're about to get is a contrast between what arriving to the presence of God meant for Old Testament Israel and what it means for us today, all right, New Testament Christians. So he starts with what arriving at God's presence meant for Israel. You have, us, have not come to what they came to. That's in essence what he's saying. You've not come to what could be touched. And then he says, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet. 
This is a summary of what God's presence was like on Mount Sinai when he dwelt among his people. He rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. He delivered them, and then he dwelt on this mountain, Mount Sinai, and his presence was a blazing fire. This is a reference to Deuteronomy 4. It says, You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom, then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. And that sound of the trumpet that our author mentioned, you can see that over in Exodus. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders, things Exodus 19, thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp down below trembled. Here's what he's getting at. God's presence among his people when he brought them out and they arrived at his presence. It was a dark, violent storm. And inside of that storm was a blazing fire. And there was a trumpet blast that indicated God was about to speak. And this trumpet blast was so loud that it was frightening. We should be getting a feel of the terror of God's presence for Israel. And it goes further. Back to Hebrews. You've not come to the sound of words. Those who heard it begged, begged that they not that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. God's words, you got this storm around this mountain, got this trumpet blast, and then God's words when he spoke were so terrifying that the sound of them made the people afraid that they would die. Not only that, he's so holy, he said it'd be a violation for any of them to touch the mountain, or even for their livestock to touch the mountain that he was dwelling on, so holy that his punishment for that was death. But it's not like people wanted to go up there anyways. They were so afraid at the sound of his words, they thought they would die. So they begged, God, don't speak to us. In fact, they asked Moses to go up on their behalf. That's a little indicator light, a warning light. We see these all the time in scripture, a foreshadowing of Christ. They needed someone to go to God on their behalf because they weren't worthy to. Verse 21, the appearance was so terrifying that even Moses said, I am trembling with fear. So here's the author's concluding his summary of the thing that Israel came to, saying God's presence with his people was so terrifying. Even the greatest of Israel's heroes, Moses, was afraid. I mean, if anyone could handle God's glory, it would be Moses. He had met with God repeatedly. And yet the author reminds us here, the people of Israel, God's people, were brought out of bondage in slavery. They were brought out by God, and they journeyed. They came to a terrifying mountain. It could be touched with a physical hand, but if you touched it, you'd die. And all that is set up to then contrast with a second mountain. All right, remember, he's talking to the church here, to those that really believe Jesus died for their sins, that he was the Holy One who was able to go up and speak to God on our behalf, that he really absorbed the wrath of God for the sins of the people that he represents. He's saying those people who believe the gospel, they too have been brought out of bondage. Their bondage was slavery to sin, and their journey to God's presence will not bring them to Mount Sinai. No, God's presence doesn't dwell there anymore. Instead, he offers them a picture of heaven. I previewed this for you last week. So let's let God's word enlarge our vision of him and enlarge our vision of what awaits us. Verse 22, 
Listen, church, instead, you have come to Mount Zion. I mean, even the, um, the tense of the words matter here. You have come. This is a, uh, it's like a perfect tense verb, meaning it is both a completely accomplished action and it is still presently happening at the same time. <laughs> this is awesome. It's a continuing action because of what Christ has done, our future destination is secured even before we get there. And yet we're still in the process of arriving to it. How awesome is that? In, in short, we have a guaranteed reservation. Maybe that's a good way to think about it. At, at like a good table, not out on the patio, all right? Like we're inside at the good table. In the main room, Mount Zion was one of the mountains Jerusalem was built on. And we're seeing this new Jerusalem thing going to show up. So he says, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, there are a couple of places in the New Testament that articulate more about this theme right here. That God's place, his dwelling place with his people for all eternity is a city. A new heavenly Jerusalem. It's going to be Galatians 4. The Jerusalem from above is free and she is our mother. This is over in Revelation. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. That's Revelation 21. I'm telling you, you want a commentary on Hebrews 12? Just go read Revelation 21 and 22 sometime this week, all right? He says, that's what you've come to. And he says, to the myriad of angels, a festive gathering. I love this, y'all. The angels, God's messengers and warriors, they're now in peacetime. They're not fighting. They're in peacetime. They're celebrating because what we are being brought to is a festive celebration after the victory over Satan has been won for good. This is the victory party. And y'all, by the way, um, pastor moment, this right here is practice, all right? I could feel it this morning. I felt it when Zach was talking. A couple of y'all are like wanting to clap. A couple of y'all are wanting to get after it. Felt it when Zach was saying, hey, y'all want to clap and everything? And I'm like, this is practice, all right? We should leave it all on the field. You know what I mean? So I want to set the clappers free, all right? You get after it in here. You got to lead the rest of us. We are not the frozen chosen, all right? We are going after it, celebrating because we're practicing for heaven. And maybe if our eyes had a little more of a sight for where it is we're going, what's going to be? Y'all, it's going to be a party. And in here, we get to celebrate, we get to practice, and we get to remind one another of the joy of the victory that Christ has won. And we do that through celebration together. That's right. That's right. Oh, man. He keeps going. To the assembly of the firstborn, whose names have been written in heaven. Okay, the assembly of the firstborn. All right, that's the church. That's a symbolic label for the church. The firstborn, that's a reference to Colossians 1. Firstborn is Christ himself. And we, the church, are the assembly, the gathered ones of Christ. And our names have been written in heaven. Can we just thank God our names have been written down in heaven? Man, there's this, there's this moment in Luke's gospel where the disciples start to realize they got some power that Jesus has given them. They're going out and they are setting people free from demonic oppression and they're healing people and they come back and they're like, Jesus, we were doing some stuff. This was awesome. And he says, great, but don't rejoice in it. Don't rejoice in that. 
No, no, no. Don't rejoice in the battle that I've given you victory over. Rejoice in the war that has been won for you. And your names are written in heaven. Luke 10, 20. Don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's where we have come. To our names written. To the place your name's already written. We sing it sometimes. We preach it sometimes. I don't know if we understand the hope in heaven, the eternal glory, if we're in Christ. Only if you were in Christ. Y'all. Our prayer team, we were praying um, this morning, and I was like, look, we're talking about heaven. And one of our prayer team members summed it up really quickly when I was like, you know, I'm trying to figure out what the application is. It's like, make sure you're going. Right? I was like, yes, that is it. Like, it's just only if you are in Christ. But if you are in Christ, your name is written down. There's in the book of life, the name Spencer Cook Shelton, because I'm assuming he's just doing what my mom and dad. Like, just, they, he gave them that. They put it down. It's down. In the book of life. Your motivation, your strength for today is in that vision of forever. I think about our city, y'all. Charlotte is all about relational networking. Like you got to know somebody to break in and become somebody, right? And because of that, you almost always feel like an outsider at some point or another. You're always trying to get noticed. You always, you're Alexander Hamilton. You want the world to know your name, right? But it's such an empty pursuit. There will always be a red velvet rope that you want to get past, but your name isn't written down there. And the problem is, even if you do get on the other side of it, eventually it will bore you over there. And it'll disappoint you, and you'll start looking for another rope to cross. I was, um, I was invited into a secret society in college. Secrets out, right? There, there were rumors about it, nothing concrete, and then I got invited. And, and the reason I'm sharing with you is after the initiation ceremony, which is pretty cool feeling and everything, Nothing ever happened ever. I have no idea if it exists still to this day, right? So disappointing. And that's such a depiction of the in crowd. Like you get in, get in with the popular crowd in high school, and then get so disappointed by it. And what do you spend? So, I mean, especially y'all high school students, I love you. Let me just say, man, if you have to sacrifice your integrity, your body, your faith, all so that Aisha and Chloe will like you, are you kidding? And your brothers and sisters in Christ are over here saying, your name is written in the book. Take courage there. Instead, all that other stuff is stew. Connecting back to last week, if you were here, it's just stew. But instead, your name's been written in the book of life. So instead of trying to get them to approve of you, you need to go and tell them about the one who has saved you because they are just as insecure as you are. We all are, even more so if we don't have Christ. If your motivation, if your strength is getting you up, getting you going today, is in anything temporary, it will not serve you. It will let you down. It's just a matter of time. And God is over here saying, I got something that'll last. It'll last forever. I've got forever level motivation. I know your name. I wrote it down. And you're good forever with me. And he keeps going. He keeps going to a judge who is God of all. That's what you've come to, right? Your name's been written in the book. To a judge who is God of all and to the spirits of righteous people made perfect. God's a judge. That's part of his role in the cosmos that he's created to judge mankind. And yet this judge is not striking fear into his people, 
No, he's a judge who has declared you and I righteous. We have been made perfect. We didn't make ourselves perfect. Didn't even make ourselves good. All we have to bring to the Lord are filthy rags. He has made us perfect, so he welcomes us home. In fact, he doesn't dwell apart from us up high on the mountain in New Jerusalem. He dwells among us. I'll show you that in just a minute. Before I do, look at the final thing he tells us in this motivation to holy living, verse 24. And, and you've come to Jesus. He's going to be there. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. All right, we've arrived at Jesus, the mediator. Let me explain this. You can get all it has for you, even in this little verse here. The mediator of a new covenant. The old covenant was a sacrificial system where the people of Israel had to sacrifice goats and sheep as offerings. Animal blood was spilled so that our blood, human blood, didn't have to be spilled. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's the way God has set it up. But then Jesus comes along and he says this actually at the Last Supper with his disciples. He's creating a new covenant that says his blood is spilled as atonement for our blood. Once for all, our sin debt is paid by him. It's called sprinkled blood because when the Jewish priests sacrificed animals, they would sprinkle some of that blood on God's altar for forgiveness. So Jesus' death is his blood being sprinkled on the altar so we can live. And then it says that his blood speaks. That's very uncommon. In fact, it only occurs one other time where Scripture says that the blood speaks. And it's in the passage referenced, Genesis 4. Right? Adam's son, Cain, kills his other son, Abel. And when God confronts Cain, God says, What have you done? Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. In this case, the blood of the one who was murdered sought to bring vengeance on the murderer. But then it says, what Hebrews says, no, 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 Jesus' blood speaks something better than that. His blood cries out for the forgiveness of the very ones who murdered him. His blood doesn't say, what have you done? His blood says, look at what I've done. And he's done it for you. He's not crying out for vengeance. Instead, the blood is extending forgiveness if you'll receive it. That's the mountain that you and I have come to in Christ. Let me show you, let me kind of fill out the picture through Revelation 22. I'm going to read you the first five verses of Revelation 22 to show you uh, where John talks about this place that we are going to, okay? He says, then he showed me, this is Revelation 22, 1 through 5, he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the city's main street, the tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations. And there will no longer be any curse. That's a curse of sin that brings pain and suffering and death and tears and anxiety and fear. That's gone. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city right there with them, and his servants will worship him, they will see his face. You can't even get near that. You can't even get close to him on Mount Sinai. We will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light 
and they will reign forever and ever. Not darkness and terror and gloom and set apart, but instead light and healing and seeing his face. Why? Has he changed from being the God of the Old Testament? Is it, is it a different God? No. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He's the same always. No, it's because of Christ. The reason the thing changes is because Christ has made us perfect, so now we can dwell with God, and it is pleasant for us. That's where you've come. That's what Christ has secured for you and I. Eternal joy, healing, no pain, no curse, no tears. That's what is stored up for us. He says, that's who you are. And now he's going to say, therefore. Well, what, I, what we're trying to do with this series in Hebrews 12 is you do have plenty of therefores. We have therefores. Scripture calls us to obey God. It's for our flourishing. But man, look at him first. See him for who he is. That vision of forever strengthens us for today. Verse 25. See to it that you do not reject the one who speaks. For if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. The command is simple. It's so life-centering. Do not reject God. Don't reject him. For if Israel didn't escape God's punishment when he talked to them from the mountain, whenever they disobeyed God, horrible consequences came to them. And the authors of Hebrews is saying, he's still the same God. He's actually spoken in a more sure way than he did to Israel. He's revealed himself from heaven. Um, earlier in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 2, our author brought this up. This is Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. He says, we got to pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels has proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Basically, we got a more sure testimony than they did. We got God's voice from heaven, the revealing of Christ, the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, giving testimony to God the Father and God the Son. So the author is saying, and what we've been saying for three weeks is don't miss God. Don't ignore him. Don't put him off till you're, you know, settled down a little later in life. Don't miss him. Don't turn away from him. Draw near. And then our author reminds us, verse 26, his voice shook the earth at that time. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This expression, yet once more, indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. See, when God spoke on Mount Sinai, the whole mountain would shake. And he has promised that he will shake the earth again, the heavens and the earth. By the way, I love this because here's what's happening. Uh, scripture is just going to go ahead and interpret scripture for you. So you don't have to do this work on this one. Haggai 2.6, um, Hebrews is going ahead and giving you an explanation. Haggai 2.6 says, thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I'll shake the heavens and earth and sea and the dry land. Haggai's foreshadowing a day when the whole earth's going to shake, but not just the earth, the heavens as well. He's going to transform the heavens. There's going to be earthquake, heavenquake, whole kind of thing, all right? It's all going to shake. And this is why the author of Revelation says in Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven. 
You ever thought of, think about that? A new heaven and a new earth, the first heaven and the first earth passed away. The sea was no more. Why? Because God's going to shake it down. He's going to create something new and final. He's going to renew heaven and earth through this change to make the new heavens and new earth even more worthy of his presence. And there's the amazing thing to me. We, the saints, remain as a part of what cannot be shaken. We remain there because of Jesus and what he did for us. We remain in the presence, seeing his face, remaining in the presence of God the Father through all of the renewal of the heavens and earth. And one day we get to be in final glory with him. We remain. So verse 28, he says, therefore, since, summarize this whole thing up, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Man, I just, man, I want y'all to walk out of here today. Just walking high, head lifted up kind of thing. Because I don't know, I just, I know in our church, uh, given the past, I don't know, 18 months, and just even if it wasn't like the pandemic stuff, just normal life, man, some of y'all feel shaken by circumstances and situations, and that is completely understandable. And that's why God's word is here for us, to remind you that even when the whole world seems to be falling apart, you are a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Certainty. Certainty in Christ. That's right. So he says, what's our application step? Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. This is us, church. Thankfulness. Saying, look, look at that full picture. Kind of zoom back out now that it's been painted and look at it. Not the gloom and terror of Mount Sinai, not the sacrificial system. Instead, you have Mount Zion. It's yours. Christ is yours. Heaven is yours. New Jerusalem is yours. The very face of God is yours, and nothing can shake it. Nothing, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else created will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's ours. So be thankful. Praise him. Worship with true, deep gratitude to God for what he has given you in this world, that loving father, and what he promises you in the world to come. A humble, thankful heart towards God. That's what the church, that's the call on the church. It's character of the church. When we spend more of our time meditating, considering, drawing ourselves to the certain kingdom that cannot be shaken, that our names are there, that Jesus has gone, John 14, and prepared a place for you there, you'll be thankful. You'll be thankful. You'll be humbled. You'll be strengthened. Look at what awaits you. Your strength for today is your vision for forever. And he says, buy it. And he gives us another application. We may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, Serve God acceptably. Your translation might just read worship because that's what it's after. Worship is both, it's not just limited to like a singing in the room, though it is certainly that. It is a a way of life. We serve God with our, our lives and we do so with reverence and awe. It's worship characterized by he is holy. We are not. He is great. We are small. He is infinite. We are finite. And then verse 29 finishes with this call back to Mount Sinai to remind us that the God of the New Testament is the same as the God of the Old Testament. For our God is a consuming fire. The consuming fire 
is to be revered, is to be in awe of, is to be worshipped. And now because of Christ, the consuming fire does not consume us. The consuming fire enlivens us. He calls us close, and instead of condemning and consuming us, he warms our hearts. He refines us. He makes us new. He's still every bit as powerful as he was on Sinai. Every bit as holy. Every bit as good. And only through Jesus, you can now approach him, and you can walk with him. And Christ is going to say he dwells with you. The form, his Holy Spirit dwells with you now here, here on earth. I'm always drawn to um, Susan's conversation with Mr. Beaver and C.S. Lewis's The Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe when I think about this. And you guys, you know, I mean, whether you've seen the movie, read the book, or been around here for at least a year, because I probably quote this thing every year. That's so good. Um, she is uh, talking with Mr. Beaver about who Aslan is, the, the king. And she's taken aback when she learns that he's a lion. Because she expected he would, of course, be a man. And she says, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who says anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. And he's the king. I love that because it shakes us out of this hallmark sentiment of God and forces you to reconsider how you approach him. He's a consuming fire, but he doesn't consume you. Let me close summarizing Hebrews 12's call on our lives. Verses 1 and 2. Because of the great cloud of witnesses, you're not in this alone. You're not in this alone. There's a great cloud of witnesses that have come before you, and there is a church you are sitting among right now. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. This whole chapter 12 is all about endurance. Endurance. When you do, when you fix your eyes on him, you can run the race. God, the loving father, verses 3 through 12 showed us. God, this loving father, he's for your good, even in the toughest of suffering. So strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees. Make your paths straight. He loves you, so don't give up. But in Christ, get up and walk. Don't take your eyes off of him like Esau did. Maybe you're coming in here today, maybe you're watching and your eyes have wondered. And wandered away. You've been immersed in the temporary. And if they have, my hope for you today is our passage here. Look at forever. Remember forever. Fix your eyes. When it says fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, back in verses 1 and 2, now that's been given a fullness to it. Fix your eyes on the cross. Fix your eyes on the empty tomb. And fix your eyes on the throne in heaven, where he is now. Fix your eyes on New Jerusalem, on the book that your name is written in, and worship. That's how you gain strength from God. Like, yeah, it's the craziest thing. The way that you gain strength from God is to give yourself in worship to him. And in what feels like it would be emptying yourself, it actually fills you up. Like, if we really did treat this as practice for heaven, and we just worshiped to like where we were sweaty and needed a water break kind of thing, right? If we did that, that would actually fill us up. It would fill our tank. Time in prayer and scripture meditation, that doesn't drain you because you have given your time to God. It fills you up. You think extra sleep would give you rest. No, getting up early and thinking about heaven, that actually gives you rest in your soul. It's more restful than sleep, more strengthening than sleep. 
Here's, your, here's how you respond today, y'all. You repent. Make sure you know where you're going. <laughs> like, I want this to be true for you. And if you have even an inkling that you don't know where you stand with Christ, today is the day that you receive his salvation because only in Christ is all of this for you. Eternity is coming. Every worldview ever, every religion, everything else, believes that you will die because you will. That's just what it is. And scripture right here is saying, look, as we look beyond that last breath, it's not just to strike fear in you, but it is calling you to. Eternity's calling. And you got to respond. And for those of you that are in Christ, man, I want you to just worship. I want you to worship. We're going to, by God's grace, I didn't even know this was the timing, how we're going to do this. We're going to have baptism, uh, both in this service and, and the next today, which is a just like simple picture sermon of God's grace on us of the new life we have in Christ, that the old life is buried and we rise to new life and we rise to eternity, like to, to eternity secured for us. One more thing to be there. And that can be you as well. You might need to respond to that. Here's what I want to do. I, I normally have us like pray to close our time, but we need to respond in worship. We need to fix our eyes on the one who is worthy of our worship. So you guys in the band, why don't y'all Come on up here. Uh, church, why don't y'all go ahead and stand up? We're going to practice, right? That's what we're doing. We're practicing for heaven. That's right. Let the clappers be set free because we are practicing for heaven. That's right. We're singing this song, Is He Worthy? I, love, I just love God's timing on today. Is He Worthy? And we're going to sing about who God is. These are going to be testimonies from scripture, the words that you're singing. And then there's this anthem that the church is called to respond with. He is worthy. He is worthy. So I'm going to give him my praise. So you respond. If you need to receive his forgiveness, as we sing, you say, God, I believe. I believe you died for me. I receive it. And I worship because you are worthy of that. Church, let's worship. Let's celebrate our God who is worthy.